Hey, Rim Church. We are so glad that you're tuning into the podcast. I did want to give you a quick disclaimer that in this sermon, we do mention some sensitive topics. So if you're listening with a younger audience around, we just wanted to give you a heads up. Thanks again for joining, and we pray that God would speak to you in a new and refreshing way. Well, my wife, Jane, and I, we have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. And so what that means is that we watch a lot of Disney Plus these days, okay? And so don't judge me if you're like the like, no-screen parent. Uh, we started off that way, and then you, somewhere you give up. Uh, and so <laughs> you win. Uh, we got to take a break and I need a nap. And so... Um, we can maybe cut that out of the podcast. Uh, so, uh, but one of our favorite movies as or was for a season in the worship household uh, was the Disney Pixar movie Coco. Okay. Have you guys seen Coco? Amazing. So, so good. Okay. And the sto- if you haven't, I'm not going to spoil too much, but here's kind of the, the synopsis. The story of Coco, it revolves around uh, this kid, this 12-year-old named Miguel, uh, who's his whole family has banned music like they they run from it okay all forms of it and the reason for that lies like this is the the depth this is if you double click on it the reason that they ban music is because of this deep-seated level of unforgiveness and this unforgiveness is being passed down you literally see it in the movie passed down from generation to generation to the point where it even affects uh the, the 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 world of the dead okay the land of the dead and so this unforgiveness ultimately keeps this family from living the life of beauty that they were intended to, okay? This, un- this unforgiveness holds them back. But the story kind of is Miguel choosing to trust a bigger story that ultimately leads his family to forgiveness and to freedom, okay? Now, I share that, okay, because we just read a passage that if we're just all very honest— this this morning as Carmel read that you're like that's a super weird story there was a lot of weirdness in there and I'm going to go ahead and just tell you I'm going to pull back the curtain and tell you the heartbeat of this is it's all about the choice of forgiveness or as we're going to see in Noah's story the choice not to forgive the choice not to trust God this is where we're going okay and if you are if you're new here um, at the rim, uh, we've been in a series walking through the book of Genesis, and we started, we knew that it kind of had maybe like this indefinite timeline that we were going through, and I think we're like on week 16, we're like been four months been in this book, and it's been incredible, like we've loved it, it's been so, so cool, and the reason we've loved it is this Genesis, the bigger story, is what we've realized is the first few pages of the Bible, really the first two or three pages of the Bible, set the tone for the entire rest of the story. That's a lot like if you maybe you're musical in this, uh, in this space, if you've seen uh, Hamilton, okay? It's those opening songs that set forth the melodies and the tones that are going to be re- recycled and reactivated throughout the entire musical. And so that's what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are really kind of doing. They're going, hey, this is, this is the melody. Pay attention. This is going to be repeated over and over and over again. And if we don't understand these first few pages, then we have a tendency to start to live for a smaller story, a smaller gospel. And so that's going to be kind of like our aim, is to, for us to realize that we're actually invited into a much bigger story than we ever thought possible. That many of us, we've been given 
a smaller, shrunken, skewed version of the gospel. That when we think about the gospels, we think of like, oh, well, maybe it's the first four books of the New Testament. Or we'll summarize it by saying that something like, hey, the gospel is that uh, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. If I pray this prayer, I get a golden ticket to heaven. Which, hear my heart, is not inherently wrong. It's just a really shrunken version of the gospel. And what if it's much bigger? What if it's big enough to hold your questions, all of your wrestles, your doubts? What if it's big enough to contain all of that and much more? And so that's what we've kind of been looking at as we've been walking through this story. So I want to recap real quick because what we're going to see here in chapter 9 is a lot of things that have been repeated from pages 1 and 2, and I want to make sure that you don't miss it, okay? So here we go. Uh, we'll kind of do a quick little recap. Okay, so Genesis 1, page 1, that we see, we, we, this is how we set the stage, that God enters into this unlivable chaos, this wild and wasteland, and in the very, very first verse, very first two verses, what we see is God creates order and he creates a place for humans to flourish. And then God creates humanity in his own image. And he gives them their very first commandment, uh, which does anybody remember what it is? To be fruitful and multiply. A little multiplication sign there, okay, uh, to help. So, yeah, be fruitful, multiply, co-labor with me, partner with me to help cultivate and care for this world that he's given us. And then, listen, day one uh, in their adventure, God then tells Adam and Eve to rest. They're not tired. They haven't done anything. But what is God communicating from even page one is this, is that we are a people that from a place of rest, from a place of security, from a place of knowing who we are, we then step into what God has called us to do. And often, especially in America, we get it backwards, that we believe that what we do determines who we are determines our value that we offer. And from page one and two of scripture, it's like, no, 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 no. Your value comes from your being, not in your doing. That you are a human being, not a human doing, okay? So then we were introduced into the garden. Like God puts these, this man and woman in a garden, and there's these two trees that ultimately represent a choice. And the choice is, will you trust God, or do you choose to be God? Well, we know how the story goes. Adam and Eve, uh, they choose ultimately to be, to be God. Okay, we, we learn that, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. God gives Adam this task of naming all the animals, which is really, really important. Uh, and then God creates Eve. He's not alone anymore. How cool is that? Okay, uh, and then there's this really strange character that we talked at length about. Uh, this weird talking snake, the serpent, that should be weird. To you. Like we gloss over it, and there's the lullaby effect that we've heard this so many times. Like, yeah, it's a talking snake. And you're like, no, that's weird. It should be weird. It was weird for the original readers as well. And what we learned ultimately in this story connected to why Adam and why Adam was given the job to name all the animals was this: is that God is trying to communicate that you and I are different than the beast of the field. Like we were created in God's image. And what we see with the snake is when the snake comes to Eve and says, even if God did say, 
don't need it. So what? What's it matter? You, you want to eat it, right? You have a desire inside of you to eat it. And so we, we talked about how, how God communicates to animals through instinct, through passions, through desires. It's how God communicates. And so when a lion attacks an antelope and eats it from instinct, it's always God's will. And so we also have desires and passions, but the difference between us and animals is that God speaks to us and his word trumps our passions, our desires. They submit to those. Does that make sense? So what the, what the snake ultimately is saying is, Eve, you're just an animal. Respond to your desires. Do whatever you want. Even if God did say, so what? You want to, right? And so the snake inter- introduces this idea that desire, passions, are going to start to be at war with what God speaks to us. You see this in page four with the story of Cain and Abel, when all of a sudden Cain gets really frustrated at his brother, wants to kill him, and what does God say? Hey, there's a beast that's crouching at your door, a desire that wants to take you out. Don't listen to it. Don't listen to it. It's going to destroy you. And so that we see these echoed over and over again. Well, Adam and Eve, they take from the tree, They realize that they're naked, and this introduces all this idea of shame and toxic shame that we feel in our bodies today, okay? So, and there's this covering. So, anyway, we talked about that there's these introduction notes, okay? And the Noah story that we talked about these last two weeks, Austin's done a phenomenal job, which is so cool. Our parallels, they're mirrors. Oh, I forgot these. Okay, there was Adam and Eve. I put a lot of work into this. Oh, they were naked and understand. Okay, there it is. Sweet. Um, <laughs> gosh. Oh, I almost missed that. The payoff. Okay, so, but what we see here, anyways, uh, what we see here is these parallels, okay? That the Noah, the flood story, is it literally parallels, it mirrors the creation story. And we don't have time to go back to like unpack and show you how that works. Well, today, what we see is this Noah in the vineyard. This is going to mirror, it's going to parallel Adam in the garden. And I want you to see this, okay? This is so, so cool. Okay, we'll restart in verse 18. I'm going to kind of walk us through this slowly. And hopefully this will shed some light and then it will kind of all come full circle. You ready? Here we go. In verse 18, it says, Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Yepheth. Okay? And then Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, that right there should kind of jump off the page. Like, that's really random. Like, why, why highlight that? It's almost like the author is going, psst, pay attention. That's going to be important in just a little bit. Pay attention, okay? So it says, these three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated, okay? Then it goes on, it says, Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent, Ham, the father of Canaan, there it is again, pay attention, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Okay, now remember, I just mentioned that these stories are going to mirror. 
the Genesis 2 and 3 story, Adam and and, in the garden. So here's what I want to ask, okay? This is the participation part. What kind of, like, what do you, what what mirrors do you see, okay? What, What parallels pop off? A man of the soil. Ooh, Adam. Uh, is created from the soil. Yeah, very, very good. Nakedness. Yep, that was a big deal. Talked a lot about that one. A vineyard. Why vineyard? It's a garden. Yes, very, very good. What is it? He had a choice. Okay, in what way? Ooh, I like that. I didn't even see that. That's really good. Yeah, a choice has consequences. What else? There's a tent. Ooh. Okay, Matt. I like that. Yeah, super good. Okay. This is why you do this in community. It's so much better. All right. What else? A couple more. Ooh. He, he ate the fruit. How, where is that here, Lashad? Yes. He takes... Some of the fruits, yes, uh, of, the, of the vineyard. Any other ones? There's one of them. This one's a little bit more obscure. I'll show it to you. Uh, he uh, became drunk. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, a lot of uh, kind of the rabbinical like, commentators will make the connection to eating the fruit in, off the tree and it becoming this almost like uh, a dysphoria, like a, a, a drunken state, where all of a sudden it's like uh, the opposite of like they were very sober before, and then they almost Adam and Eve get caught up in the shame and the, all that stuff. Yeah, so, so there's some connections there uh, that's a little obscure. And then, uh, yeah, uh, there was that Father Canaan, and then you nailed it, naked, really big, uh, very, very key. Okay, so how cool is that? Like, is this, I, I, I get it, I'm kind of nerdy out about all this, like, I think this it, what's important for us to see in this paragraph is this is wildly intentional. This is not by happenstance. The Bible is trying to communicate something to us. Now, unfortunately, Noah, in a world that's been recreated and reset, chooses to take the exact same path as Adam and Eve. He chooses the exact same path. He eats from the fruit of his own garden. He gets drunk. He winds up naked. And then this whole story is going to end in a lot of family drama. Okay? So let's keep going. Uh, Verse 23. Then Shem and Yafet took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders. And walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Okay? So here I want you to see that they're covered his nakedness. Now, interesting, okay, this is just a little side note for those of you that care. Uh, In this story, we have two sons that are being like God in Genesis 3, and they're covering Noah's nakedness. While one son is playing the role of the serpent, taking advantage of Noah's nakedness. There's like so many layers to this. So good. But we don't have time for that part. Okay, here we go. So their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. Okay? Verse 24. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done, okay, to him. Now, I'm going to pause. 
So Adam, or sorry, Noah, plants a vineyard. Realistically, this takes time. Vineyards don't just pop up. We're talking potentially five plus years. Creates, he builds a vineyard, a garden. He then takes the fruit. He gets drunk. He's naked. He's in the privacy of his own tent. And his son sees him. And something's happening here. And all of a sudden, he, he wakes up. There's a blanket on him. We don't know what else is going on. And he's, he's furious. He's really, really frustrated. There's, there's something going on. He notices what his youngest son has done here. The question that we have to ask that should have been brought up as we read this text is what exactly did his son do? Why is Noah so bent out of shape? Well, historically there are probably three options to what could have happened and what Ham actually did to his father Noah. The first is this, we take it uh, at face value, okay? Meaning Ham saw his dad naked and in a high honor, high shame culture, uh, this brought a lot of shame to Noah. Once again, echoing the story in Genesis chapter 3. Maybe that's what's going on here. And if that's, that's where it stops, it's still important. And we're going to see in just a little bit. But culturally, the phrase here, to look upon or saw the nakedness, means a little bit more than face value. And a lot of people believe that the Torah, uh, the, the, the first five books of, of the Old Testament, are actually being very kind of like polite and pulling back a little bit. Okay? And so the word here has the idea of perceive. It's not just to see something, it's actually to perceive it, to understand it. To perceive, not just to see. Now what this means is when somebody looks and perceives the nakedness, they're doing a little bit more than just looking at it. So one of two things is usually meant by this Hebrew idiom, okay? This is very popular in the culture. Either this means that molestation is involved, I know that's dramatic, or in many cases, it means castration, okay? Because they're seeing and taking something. They're seeing and perceiving, okay? So more than likely, in the ancient Eastern world, this would have meant that one of those two things Ham did to Noah, which makes this story a tad bit more intense, okay? But now the question is, which one is it? Did he, did he molest his father or did he castrate his father, okay? Well, the Midrash, which is the kind of the Torah commentary, says, oh, that's super easy. It was castration, which now raises a huge question of how is it so sure? Like, why would it lean into that so heavily? Well, if, if that's true, there's got to be something in this text that implies that fact. That, that there's something else going on that would make us believe that is what happened to Noah. Okay, so here we go. Buckle up. We just said that the story's parallel. It's a mirror of which story? Yeah, yeah. Adam, Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay? So, Genesis 2 and 3, the story of Adam and Eve. Now, if you remember, as we walked as a church, if you were here, we walked through Genesis 2. There was this really awkward, what felt like a misplaced story on page two uh, uh, of Genesis. Do any of you remember 
this weird paragraph that we kind of like just nodded at, but we really didn't tackle. Anybody remember? Or if you just look back and, oh, man, I remember reading Genesis 2 in my own time. This is a weird story. I've always had questions about this. It doesn't seem like it makes sense in the place. Anybody? Any guesses? The animal source, that's an interesting. A little bit before that, God takes Adam. He places him in a garden, this weird, strange, out-of-place paragraph. Then man's alone. Then he creates Eve. I do remember this. What is it? What is it? Yeah, take him to sleep before that. Let me help you. I'm going to give it to you. Oh, some of you are looking. I wouldn't want to brush it. I'm just going to go for it. I'll tell you. Okay. Uh, it's the story of these rivers. We're walking through Genesis 2. There's this weird paragraph in the middle of nowhere about these four rivers. Now, here's what's interesting. The first river is given a lot of details about it. The second river, a little less detail. Third river, even less. The fourth one, almost nothing's mentioned about it. It's just like, oh, there it is. There's a river. Now, in the Eastern culture, there are two major images uh, that are used when talking about a family. You could guess one of them we use in our Western world. It's that of a family tree. And so then the branches, you know, kind of go off. The second one, any guesses, Eastern world, not tree, but it's a, a river. Yeah, and the branches. Okay, okay, you tracking with me. Here we go. This is going to get good. So... It's this river. It's a symbol of a family line and all of its branches, okay, the creeks, if you will. Now go with me here. If these two stories are paralleled, how many rivers did I just mention? Four. How many sons does Noah have? Three. So watch this. If he has only three sons... And he remembers the command that God gave him when he stepped off the boat in verse 9 of chapter 1. God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is also important. This isn't just his sons. God blesses Noah and his sons and tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. Which is, once again, the same blessing that we see on page 1. Okay, none of this by accident. So, based on the story and the parallel, we start to have an idea of exactly what Noah thought was going to happen next in the story. Any guesses to what he thought was going to happen? He was going to have another son. And so you realize there's this fourth river. There's, su there's supposed to be a fourth son. So... In verse 25, when it says, he wakes up, he then curses Canaan, and he says, you'll be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. Again, we have a curse that was in the other story as well. But wait, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't line up. Why? Because who, who did the offending? Who offended Noah? Ham. Like, it, it's Ham. 
it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not Canaan. So why does Noah get up and curse Canaan, Ham's son, and not Ham? It's a great question. Well, based on some of the teachings of some rabbis, specifically a guy named David Foreman, he would say that the reason that this is happening, this giant question mark, don't you miss that, um, is that this story is all about revenge. This story is the idea that Noah is bent on revenge. Okay? So I could see that. You can start to see it, but it still seems a little extreme. Isn't, isn't Noah overreacting a little bit, cursing his grandson? Okay? So let's think about it this way. When Noah wakes up, he knows something's gone on. Learn what his youngest son had done. He immediately knows something's going on. So according to the Midrash, the ancient Torah commentary, Noah wakes up and knows that something has happened because something very important to him is missing. Are you tracking? You got it? Okay, I don't want to explain that too much, okay? Um, so imagine, he wakes up, and he has to be thinking, what in the world have you done, Ham? Like you, you, you have robbed me of my ability to be fruitful and multiply and produce sons like God has asked me to do. You've cursed me. And so not only am I going to curse you, I'm going to curse your son, your legacy. I'm going to take this one step further. This whole story is about vengeance. And what's so interesting is it's coming off the hill of the story of the flood. And Marty Solomon in the Bama podcast, he says it this way. And don't miss this. I wish I would have put it up here. But here we go. It says, in the flood story, God knew when to say enough about his destructive power. And Noah is having to learn to do the exact same. And so this is his invitation to trust the story, his invitation to trust God, his invitation to not let his desire from the serpent, his desire for vengeance to get the best of him, his invitation to just trust. Noah, don't do anything stupid here. Don't, don't pass on Ham's mistakes to his children and his children's children. It's interesting here that the word curse, uh, up to this point in the story, has only been used one other time. And Noah is the only person in the Bible that uses this curse, the only human being. The only other person to use this word for curse is God himself when he curses the serpent. So now you start to look like, oh, the snake who was equal with all of his other animal contemporaries becomes subservient to the other animals. And here that Noah would curse his grandson and say, you, you will be subservient to all of your brothers all of the other family members, okay? What's happening here is Noah is stepping into the role of God, believing that God isn't going to do what needs to be done. I don't trust you, God. I don't believe that you're just. 
I don't believe that you're going to fulfill your promises because all of a sudden now there's a dead end and I don't know how we're going to get through it. So if this is going to work, I have to take control. Like I I have to step into this place and make something happen. We're going to see that story repeated again and again and again. You think about just even Abraham and Sarah. All of a sudden God makes a promise, but it seems like there's a dead end. So what do they do? They play the role of God. That they say, well, I'll I'll take control. I'll do this because obviously, God, you're asleep at the wheel. And so there's a lack of trust. And so Noah chooses to step into the role of God. To choose to give in to the desire for revenge and vengeance. And he takes this curse and he just throws it. Not even on the one who deserves it. He throws it on the one who doesn't deserve it. And this is going to be this endless tragedy because all throughout the story, Cain and his descendants are going to be at odds with the people of God. That the Canaanites are the people that are actually in the place of the promised land when the Israelites go in. And it just becomes a massive tension and continues to be a massive tension even to today. So the story is going to have these internal repercussions to it. Horrible tragedy of a bunch of people not knowing when to say enough. And so in this story, this is one of the places that we're introduced to the concept of forgiveness, which is going to come back a whole lot. And like I said, this is why forgiveness is so important. Because for us to ultimately put the world back together, to partner with God to put the world back together, it's going to require forgiveness. And forgiveness is the greatest form of trust. When you forgive, you are trusting that God is in charge of the world. And the first step of forgiveness is stopping the madness, stopping the cycle of vengeance. It's, I mean, it's truly mimicking the God of this story, a God who knows when to stop destroying that knows when to step back. The author of Genesis here is inviting you and I, even today, to trust the story. He's speaking up to us to not lash out in insecurity. Don't lash out in fear. Don't lash out in our shame. All this was pent up in Noah's shame. He knows he's supposed to have more kids, and now he can't. And now he's full of shame. Now he's full of insecurity because he's, he's not everything that he wants to be. And he knew that he, or that he knew he should be. And so the question is, is what's he going to do? Is he going to trust the story? Is he going to trust the God that's writing the story? Is he going to grab the pen and try to write his own story? So I want you to think about your own life this morning. And no matter how we, we, we interpret this scripture, and I gave you us a lot here of these options, and we kind of went down some rabbit trails of the midrash. And so regardless of where we land, whether it was just, hey, Noah was shamed, or Noah was abused, or something was stolen from Noah. His promises and hopes for a future that he thought God was going to give to him. Whatever it is, and maybe we each maybe kind of land in a different category. Maybe we need to hear something different. Maybe that's for us, that we're, we're walking in a lot of shame right now. That someone's put that, that weight on us, that they've handed their shame to us that we're now carrying. Or maybe we've been abused at some level along the way. Or, or maybe something's been stolen from us. The question this morning is, will we trust God? 
Will we trust the story? Or will, will we step into the role of God and try to make this happen our own, our, our own way? Will, will we repeat the steps of Noah? We are invited to trust the story, to trust that God is in control and he knows what he's doing even when we don't see it. Even when we don't see it. What's cool is this story, as we see, it's going to repeat and echo all throughout the Old Testament. And we see when the hero of the story finally shows up, this Jesus of Nazareth. And he would begin to speak about the kingdom of God and what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. What it looks like to live not in heaven when you die, but to live in heaven before you die here on earth. To make our world feel a little bit more like the garden. He would have these really audacious teachings where Jesus would say things like this. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Meaning, hey, if somebody takes something from you, you get to take from them. You've heard that said. It's been repeated over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. But he's going to flip the kingdom upside down and say, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And then he says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus is rewriting the script and he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or I'll even maybe just add this to the list. Love your enemies and pray for those, not just who persecute you, but who think different than you who maybe voted different than you, who have different opinions on matters. Like we're starting to see why that this isn't just an ancient truth or just an ancient good idea. This is wildly prevalent to us right now, today. Verse 45, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Oh, so good. Jesus' teaching. What's also really, it's not by accident, and it's beautiful. Jesus, in the final moments of his life, would take on the role of the innocent son like Canaan. That he would be willing to take on the curse on a tree. That Jesus would find himself naked on a cross, much like Noah did. And when Jesus is offered wine to numb his senses, he refuses to take the fruit. This is wild. In the moments before Jesus takes his last breath, taking on the weight of the curse. Man, listen, if Noah, it's, yeah, listen, castration, I, I don't even want to go there. I can't imagine. But it's one thing to have all of humanity, the humanity that you love, that you created, turn their back on you. To have 12 guys that you walked with for three years not even be there because they, like, straight denied you and walked away. Like, I mean, they, there's a lot there. If anybody's got, like, a reason, anybody holds justice and the keys to justice in their hands, it's Jesus. And Jesus' response here in Luke 23 is this, Father, forgive them. 
They, they, don't, they don't understand. They don't, they don't get what they're doing. It feels like they do. And all of it's pointed at me. And it feels very, very intentional. It feels very hurtful. But I'm choosing to forgive. I'm choosing to forgive so that this curse will die with me. The curse will be lifted so that they can choose from this moment forward to trust a better story. To live into a better story where a broken relationship with us and God is completely mended. What? Oh, church, it's a much bigger story than we ever anticipated. And it's a story that Jesus' followers have echoed, I mean, throughout history, or should have. Romans 12, the Apostle Paul, picking up on the words of Jesus, he says it this way. He says, don't hit back. Or don't post back, maybe. Don't comment, uh, maybe is our vernacular. Um, chill out. Discover beauty in everyone. Oof, we just pause there. God's word inviting us to discover beauty in everyone. And if you've got it in you, get along with everybody. <laughs> Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness do not let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. It has been said, to err is human. To forgive is divine. When we forgive, we choose to trust the story that God is writing instead of trying to write it ourselves. Forgiveness is the key to putting the world back together because it's the greatest form of trust. When we forgive, we are trusting that God is in charge of the world. And the first step to forgiveness is stopping the madness, stopping the, sac the cycle. Forgiveness is hard to extend, but it is what every heart longs for. I'll give you a quick example, and then I'm done. I read a story in preparation. I don't even know if the story's true. I just thought it was really cool. So, um, but there is a story, a Spanish story, uh, of a father and son who were estranged. And the son ran away and the father set out to find him. And he searches for months with no luck. So finally in this kind of last desperate effort to find him, the father puts an ad uh, in the Madrid newspaper. And the ad read just these simple words. Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. On that Saturday at noon, 800 Pacos showed up <laughs> looking for forgiveness and love from their father. Forgiveness is what our hearts long for. And it is choosing to trust the story that God is writing even if it hurts right now. God, you're in control. You know what you're doing. If I take the pen in my hand, I'm going to screw some stuff up. And in the end, if I get the revenge I seek, I'm not going to feel better. 
it just demands more blood. It's don't, it doesn't stop with my son. It's got to go to my grandson. And all that ends up hurting Noah's own legacy. He hurts himself in the process. Instead of going to four, now he's at two rivers. It only hurts himself. And so there's this invitation to trust the story. So I want to kick it to you guys. And I just simply want to ask two simple questions. I'll give you 120 seconds this, this morning. And I want you to just ask this. Based upon what God has been speaking this morning, based upon his word, what's God saying to you? What's he highlighting to you? What jumped off the page? When we talked about shame, we talked about abuse, we talked about hopes and dreams being shattered on the kitchen floor. Who came to mind? Were there names? Like what does it look like not only to extend forgiveness, but maybe this morning to receive it? To receive it. And then the second question is today, based upon what God has said, how do you get to, the, to live different? What are you getting invited into? So, church, take 120 seconds to ask and wrestle with these questions, and then we'll worship through some. Thanks again for joining us. In today's sermon, we brought up the topic of sexual abuse, and we understand that this is an extremely sensitive issue that affects a lot of people inside and outside of the church. And we want you to know that abuse, no matter what form, is never okay. God views it as evil, and He is a God of justice. Forgiveness does not mean that we accept or excuse the actions done to us. But forgiveness is a huge step in our own healing journey as we pursue joy and trust God when He says that He loves justice and is near to the brokenhearted. We serve a God that mourns alongside us when we are wronged and promises to restore all things. While this doesn't negate the pain or hurt we feel when others sin against us, it does give us hope and freedom to heal. Forgiveness never should be weaponized against victims of abuse to diminish their experiences or silence them. If you or someone you love has experienced sexual assault, we want you to know that we love you, but even more so, God sees you, loves you, and hates the sins that hurt you. Please know that you can always email us at info at rim.church, and we would love to pray with you and or help you connect to a licensed counselor who can support your healing journey. We love you, Rim Church.